Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, do or die. In 47 days, we're going to send a bold message to Ottawa that Canadians are done waiting. The people of Burnaby South are done waiting. Jagmeet Singh faces a crucial test as the NDP leader. Can he win the BC by-election and can he stay on as leader if he doesn't? Jagmeet Singh joins us as he enters the fray and then pipeline protests. Justin, your relationship with Indigenous people is failing, failing badly. Demonstrations across the country over a natural gas pipeline that was supposed to have everyone's approval. Or did it? Can Canada get any big resource projects built anymore? The scrum will weigh in on that. And cabinet shuffle. I'm ready for a change. They say life begins at 50. Well, I'm 51 and ready for new challenges. Longtime cabinet minister Scott Bryson steps down, triggering a cabinet shuffle tomorrow. Why now? Does it have anything to do with a controversial court case? Scott Bryson is here to talk about that. Plus, white supremacy? Does the Chinese ambassador's shocking accusation bring the China-Canada relationship to a breaking point? This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Well, Jagmeet Singh will finally get his shot to win a seat in Parliament after the Prime Minister called three by-elections, including one in Burnaby South, British Columbia, where Singh wants to run. But look, this is anything but a sure thing. With name recognition and fundraising problems, Jagmeet Singh faces an uphill battle. And if he loses, would he have difficulty staying on as the leader of the party, as his predecessor, Tom Mulcair, argues? Let's find out. Joining me now, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, I haven't seen you since the New Year. Happy New Year, and are you happy, finally, that you will get a chance to run for a seat in Parliament in Burnaby South? Well, Happy New Year, and yes, I'm really happy that the hundreds and thousands of Canadians who've been waiting to have a chance to have representation now all have a chance. I'm really excited about the opportunity that gives to put pressure on this government to do what's right for people. Right. Well, okay, so you're going to get a shot. It's not a sure thing there. Uh, Thomas Mulcair, the former leader, was on CTV this past week. And he said, this is going to be a tough fight for you. And if you lose this riding, he said, you will have a very tough time staying on as the leader and fighting in the federal election in 10 months. Uh, If you lose this by-election, can you remain leader and will you remain leader? So, I mean, I've already answered the question before. I'm going to be the leader that leads us into the 2019 election. But with respect to what I hear on the doorsteps, what I hear in, in Burnaby, people are really concerned about their future. And we know that the conservatives aren't going to be raising the question in the House about the housing crisis. They're not going to be talking about that. We know that conservatives aren't going to be saying we need medication coverage for all Canadians. That's not going to be what they talk about. But for the people that I speak to every single day, they're counting on me, they're counting on us to stand up for them. And, and that's why I know how much is riding on this. I know how much it counts for people. And that's what I'm focused on. I'm confident we'll do well in this riding, but I'm really worried about the future for Canadians. All right. One last question about the politics. Ten months away from a federal election. Let's be candid. Your polls are terrible, right? You're low in the polls. You're not very well known. And you guys aren't raising almost any money. This was not what people signed up for when you became the leader. In 10 months, how do you turn that around, Mr. Singh? 
Well, I'm really proud of our party, given that we had two years where we had a leader that was effectively voted out and things were really tough. We had a horrible fundraising that period of time and we had not a lot of traction. Despite that, it shows how resilient our movement is, how resilient uh, what we've built is, that the fact that it still stayed uh, so steady. And now we've actually turned things around. But more importantly, by the way, I just, it sounds like people, you're hammering Tom. What I'm hearing is that people. What Are I'm hearing is that Tom people Mulcair really need us. He hammered you? There's a lot of str struggles out there, and people are depending on us to stand up for them. And so I understand how important that is, and that's really what drives me, and that's what's really my focus and my priority. All right, people want to get to know you as the leader. L let's talk about a key issue. You're in British Columbia, where pipelines are a big issue. I know where you stand in the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. You're against it. But there are protests across this country about a liquefied natural gas pipeline and it's a 40 billion dollar project it has federal provincial and legal support from the courts and every first nation along the route their elected chiefs have supported this i ask you a simple question do you as the leader of the ndp support this lng pipeline yeah, I've already mentioned my support for this project, given the fact that they've done consultation in a very meaningful way, broadly speaking. As you mentioned, uh, the vast majority of Indigenous elected bands and chiefs have all uh, shown support, and the consultation process was done in a very meaningful way, very much in line with what we'd like to see happen with all consultations moving forward, a respect of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. This is a, a, a tough path to walk down, but it's a very important path to walk down, and that's what we've seen in the consultations, and that's what we need to see with any okay, but project to, or let any me, other, to be other fair, project moving forward. To be fair, sir, you sound exactly like Justin Trudeau. You're trying to distinguish yourself from Justin Trudeau. What would you do in the wake, if you were the Prime Minister in 10 months, what would you do with protests that are happening now across this country? There were barricades. A court gave these folks 72 hours, an injunction to enforce that injunction. If you were the Prime Minister, what would you do about these protests? Well, first off, not be silent. Uh, when we saw the protests happening, uh, immediately Nathan Cullen went out to meet with the community and speak with them. That's something important. Reconciliation requires dialogue. Uh, we didn't see the, the, tr uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Trudeau, do anything in respect of, of even mentioning this. I mentioned that uh, the, the treatment of the, of the protesters was uh, concerning. What was happening was concerning, and we needed to see uh, a support for a peaceful dialogue, and that's not something that the Prime Minister was able to do or but was sorry, even able to with speak all about. Due respect, what we I'm need sorry, to do is, I, Singh, when we I have gotta, these, uh, these, these circumstances, we need to make sure we actually have dialogue. The Prime Minister didn't do that, didn't actually speak about this, didn't mention it, and I called on the Prime Minister to step up. Okay, with all due respect, I'm just trying to figure that out. These are important issues. That does sound a bit like a word salad, like the Prime Minister had a, he had a, I'm not trying to defend him, but he had an open forum where people were yelling at him about this very thing. He took a lot of questions. When you say an open dialogue, in the end, the Premier of British Columbia, Premier Horgan said, when people break the law, the law has to be enforced. If you were the Prime Minister and there was a court injunction, would you tell the RCMP to arrest protesters who are violating a court injunction? Would you have the RCMP arrest protesters to enforce the rule of law, yes or no? Uh, I would have a, I would encourage that all law enforcement speak with those who are, who are raising concerns or protesting in a respectful manner and make sure that there is a way to facilitate uh, their discourse and their opposition in a way that's uh, safe and in a way that's legal. Let me just quickly talk about China, which is another big issue. This past week, the Chinese ambassador to Canada put out an editorial 
that accuse Canada of having a double standard. They've detained two Canadians after Canada detained the, uh, one of the business executives from Huawei, as you know, in Vancouver. But the ambassador from China accused Canada of, quote, white supremacy. If you were the prime minister, what would you say to the Chinese right now? Sorry, who accused who of uh, white supremacy? The, ch- the ambassador from China to Canada wrote an editorial and he said there's a double standard bet- uh, between Canada's enforcement of the rule of law and there's two Canadians, as you well know, detained. And he called Canada using white supremacy to enforce the rule of law. You're the prime minister. You've got to respond to that. What's the response? Uh, I, I don't know if there's any evidence of, of that suggestion. Uh, I know that there is a very important role that Canada plays in supporting the rule of law. There are concerns that folks are legitimately are raising about the Trump administration and suggestions that the Trump administration is going to use arrests as a political tool in negotiations for trade, which is completely unacceptable and wrong. That should never happen. Uh, but the rule of law should be followed. It's something that we need to be partners with internationally to make sure that there is a reliable system that we know but that sir, we can sir, depend all, on, and that's what we have to follow. Sir, I know you're criticizing the Trump administration, but China's detained two Canadians. I, I, I just wonder if you got your eye on the ball here. We've got two Canadians detained in China. What's your view on China, not on Trump? Right, right, right. So with, with China's uh, detention of Canadians, again, that is, that is deeply concerning. Uh, we need to make sure that anyone that's being detained uh, is, is being, done, it's being done in an appropriate manner, is being done in the right manner. There's actually a full due process. Uh, laws are, are being followed and their protection is paramount. Uh, we're concerned right now with, with the detention of Canadians in China. That is something that all Canadians are concerned with and we want to see our country uh, make sure that those folks are safe and that they're returned safely and that the detention is being done uh, not as a, as a uh, backlash to Canada following the rule of law. Well, Mr. Singh, i got to leave it there. Um, you're in the race now for Burnaby South and we'll be watching that closely. I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks so much. A pleasure, Evan. All right, coming up, tensions between Canada and China are red hot after the Chinese ambassador accused Canada of white supremacy. Are we heading for an all-out trade war? We'll be joined next by the former CSIS director, Dick Fadden, and the former foreign affairs minister, John Manley. Stay right here with Question Period. White supremacy, that's what China's ambassador to Canada says guides Canada's interpretation of international law. Oh yes, also Western egotism. The shockingly undiplomatic editorial escalated the dispute between Canada and China that began after the arrest of Huawei's top executive, Meng Wanzhou, in Vancouver, but has now led to the detention of two Canadians in China, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Is this the beginning of a big chill in Canada-China relations? Joining me now to dig into that, the former CSIS director and the former National Security Advisor to Prime Ministers Justin Trudeau and Stephen Harper, Dick Fadden, and also the former Deputy Prime Minister and former Foreign Affairs Minister John Manley, who's now part of his job, is on the board of TELUS. Uh, Let me start with you because you know a, a lot about this. In all the years in foreign policy, have you ever seen 
an ambassador from China essentially called Canada guided by white supremacy. What did you, what, what did you make I, I of that? Think, I, I thought it was phony, to tell you the truth, when I first heard about it. This is so far out of the norm, and it's outrageous, and it's unacceptable, and it's all the things that you described it as in the introduction. It, it really puts it, uh, Canada in a very difficult spot in trying to work with China to get through this current set of issues. Dick Fadden, when you saw it, I mean, it was a clear escalation. Just, I'm intrigued what you thought when they used that term. Well, the first thing I said was no country allows its ambassador to issue things like this on its own. So this was dictated and ordered to be produced by Beijing. So I thought it was a very, very ill-informed person in Beijing who was formulating a series of words that would have a very negative impact in Canada and is going to set back our capacity, as John said, to deal with the issue. So how do we now? Okay, now that white supremacy resonates here in a way. I mean, this made international headlines. Uh, uh, John, how, how does this then reset the Canada-China relationship, given there's two Canadians in detention there? We've got the Chinese exec in detention here in Canada. Well, we're, we're, we've got a very difficult situation to deal with here because both sides needs a, need to find a way out of this. Uh, as you know, I, I don't really think we should have got into this in the first place, but we did. Well, we're, you said on this program that the Canada should have used what you said was creative incompetence. Just when we got the extradition order from the U.S., you said we should have said, oh, we tried just to get this out of our hands. Or, or, or we could have forewarned her and told her not to f come into Canada. That she, There were a variety of things but that we could that have done. interfere with the rule of law, like our obligations under an, an extradition treaty with the I U.S.? I don't think so, because, in fact, there's discretion that's built into the extradition process at the ministerial level. This does require discretion to be exercised. But beside that, we're, we're in it now. I mean, we're like the bear in the woods. We put our foot in the, in the leg hole trap. I don't think I, there it is. I don't think I should have put my foot there, but now I've got a trap on my foot. What am I going to do to get it off? And that's a tricky one. Do you chew your leg off? Uh, that kind of hurts oh, uh, a little bit. It's it's very, very difficult situation to resolve. Does now the Minister of Justice say nay and we're not going to extradite her? Because Absolutely if so... Absolutely not. It's right. before the courts now. Right. So to John's point, once you're in a situation, you've got to deal with it. Uh, I think we both agree very, very strongly. If it's before a judge, you don't touch it. And you it's now before a judge. judge. Okay. Yeah. So now yeah. let's go to the next steps. There's yeah. some real... Now there's real... Let's go to real world consequences. Free trade deal. Huawei wants to be part of the 5G network, the next generation of wireless. Do all those things become a lot more difficult to sell to the Canadian population, John Manley? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely they do. And, and furthermore, China has some leverage with us, too, that we haven't really talked about very much. There's the trade deal. That's future things. We, it's already our largest, second largest trading partner after the United States. We've just changed the name of our Minister of International Trade to Minister of Trade Diversification. There is no trade diversification strategy for Canada without China. What do you do with that, well, if me, anything? Let me ask the other side of that question. What does China want out of Canada? I mean, they surely must want something. I think we have to work out very carefully what we want from them and what they want from us. Somewhere in there, there may be an overlap that will allow us to move the file forward. Yeah, but... In the meantime, there's two Canadians sitting yeah. there. They right. don't have the kind of legal representation that the Chinese executive has here. I mean, Canada's trying to rustle up international support. I mean, can we 
What do we do about these two Canadians who are being detained? I mean, some are saying it's they're just essentially they're hostage to this political process. How can Canada trust a country if they're going to if China allegedly is going to pluck Canadians off the street and say, now let's do this with a gun to your head? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't think that we have uh, a trusting relationship with China mm -hmm. right now in these circumstances. And I think it's very difficult. And I've. I, you know, I'm not sure who should be going to China you right now. You said you wouldn't go now? I said I wouldn't go right now. Others are saying, well, I, there's no evidence that Canadian business executives are being taken. Um, I, you know, I think that becomes a matter of personal judgment. But there's clearly a risk that this could escalate. Uh, we're pretty convinced that these two Canadians in particular are, are being held as a response right. to the Hmong case. I'm not sure I'd want to put myself in that peril right now. You agree? I agree entirely. The other thing I wanted to add, I was still working when the Garretts were being held by the Chinese. And we tried a variety of things, ministerially, public servants. Uh, I think a measure of patience is going to be required. These two people, unfortunately being held by the Chinese, are not going to be released next week. I think the Chinese have nothing to lose. They are very irritated at us. Our extradition process is rather slow, to put it very diplomatically, so they could quite easily, in their way of thinking, say to themselves, well, we're taking 12 months to process Ms. Ming. Why should they uh, deal with these cases in any, uh, f any more rapidly? I'm not saying I agree with that, but I could see somebody in Beijing thinking that. So we need to take a deep breath, continue to work, keep working at it. I mean, uh, so you're saying just I just want to before I, I let this thing yeah. go, there's a possibility these two Canadians could be there for a year. It's that with, would not be out of the question. It's to within the realm of the possible. I sure as heck hope it doesn't happen, but it's happened before. And, 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 and it's optimistic to think that our processes are going to actually resolve this for for Hmong in a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, those sometimes oh, really? go longer than that. It just depends. It depends on the judge. I mean, we're, the, the, the first trial date has been set, but it's a date to set a date. So, so th it's very this, slow. this could go very slowly. So we are looking at a long period of tension with the Chinese. Unless uh, somebody somewhere can find a way, as John has argued earlier, to find a way for both of us to back away without losing face. I can't see that right now, but it may be there somewhere. Maybe, an, maybe one of our allies will find a way of intervening. Maybe something will happen internationally that will shift the balance. But right now, I can't see it. Uh, John Manley, Dick Fadden, I've got to leave it there. Thanks to both of you. Well, we may have a long time to talk Let's about think this. think about that bear trap image. That's what we've got. Yeah, the bear trap image. All right, when we come back, a cabinet shuffle is coming on Monday as the prime minister gets his team set for the election 10 months away. One key face will be missing. Why did Scott Bryson announce his resignation from cabinet this past week? Did it have anything to do with an upcoming controversial trial? Scott Bryson will join us next right here on question period. Stay with us. We will be uh, announcing uh, what we are making in terms of changes to the cabinet uh, on Monday. So as the Prime Minister gets ready to put forward his election cabinet in this shuffle that will come tomorrow, there was a big surprise. One key person will be missing, Scott Bryson. After 22 years as an MP, the Treasury Board President announced he would be resigning to spend more time with his young family. Still, after serving as a minister in two governments, after switching parties, after becoming the first openly gay federal minister, Scott Bryson might have a hard time making a clean break. He will, of course, 
or possibly be a key witness in the court case against Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who was suspended from duty and is now charged with leaking confidential cabinet documents regarding a multi-billion dollar shipping contract, a contract that Norman's lawyers allege Bryson was trying to stop. Is this the real reason Scott Bryson is leaving? Let's find out. Joining us now is Scott Bryson. First of all, we always tip our hat, sir, to anybody who has served in public service for that long, so congratulations on your decision. You've said you're leaving after 22 years to spend more time with your family, but you will likely be a key witness in the Mark Norman trial. Did this have any bearing on your decision to quit politics? Absolutely none. In fact, uh, the witness list includes a number of former and past cabinet ministers, and some of the, the, those ministers are actually reoffering. It didn't affect their decision. It didn't affect my decision. Okay, but the allegation against you is that you acted on behalf of the powerful Irving family because they wanted the shipping contract in their shipping yard as opposed to the, the Davy Yard in Quebec. And on November 15, 2015, you went to this defense, ad hoc defense committee meeting to talk about that contract, even though, and I'm, and I'm looking at the documents, you admitted later to the RCMP that the Treasury Board, and as the president of the Treasury Board, you were, quote, engaged in... It, Treasury Board was engaged in the transaction about this file. Was that an admission that you should not have been in that meeting and that you, sir, were in a conflict of interest? Um, Evan, um, I was a member of that cabinet committee. Uh, Treasury Board is at, has a responsibility on all government expenditures to ensure good governments. That, that is a fact, and in fact, if you go to the Treasury Board's website, you'll see it's a central responsibility for Treasury Board. But this is a matter between the prosecutors and and uh, Admiral Norman, and and um, uh, that case will unfold as it will. I understand that as Treasury Board, you're supposed to be there. But if if you were had any relationship with the Irving family, you could have recused yourself. In retrospect, should you have recused yourself from that meeting? I'm not going to comment on something that's before the courts, uh, Adam, uh, or, or Evan. Again, you've got to remember that uh, this is a matter between the prosecution and Admiral Norman, or Vice Admiral Norman, and uh, I'm not going to comment on it, and uh, we'll let that case unfold as it will. Uh, let's talk a bit about your job in Treasury Board. Treasury Board is in charge of defense procurement. Uh, among other things, but also oversight in terms of federal expenditures. Your government broke the promise to balance the books, as you know, by breaking the uh, election promise of $10 billion a year uh, uh, deficits and modest deficits and balancing them by 2019. I just want to ask you, because that was your job, did you fight the Prime Minister and your Cabinet colleagues to say, don't break this deficit promise. I'm proud of the economic record of our government and that of uh, the Prime Minister, Minister Morneau, um, and our team. Uh, the fact is that Canada's debt as a percentage of GDP is actually lower today than it was under Stephen Harper. Uh, our economy is growing. Best growth in the G7, 800,000 new jobs, lowest unemployment rate in, in 40 years, Evan. And uh, so our economic record uh, is a sound one. And uh, I believe when, when Prime Minister Trudeau and the Liberal government 
uh, move forward in a campaign in the coming months, the Canadians will get it. Uh, the Canadian economy is doing well, and okay, the Canadians are doing better, I, I get and the that. middle class is growing. But I'm just, again, you're Treasury Board President. You're in charge of expenditures. At some point, you realize you're going to blow through the $10 billion. You're now at close to $19 billion. Just at one point, do you think it was, was it your job to say, whoa, we are not going to have balanced books for years and years and years to come. My job is to say, keep the promise. Did you do your job and say that? I did my job as Treasury Board to ensure uh, good governance in terms of expenditures and in, to ensure uh, that what we did was invest in the kinds of of, of measures that will grow the economy. I got to tell you, the investments we're making, Evan, and have made in people and in innovation are having a really important and positive impact on the Canadian economy. Uh, last thing before I let you go, uh, politics has changed a lot in 22 years. If you had to say that the thing you're most proud of in 22 years as an MP, what would that be, Scott Bryson? When I entered public life, Evan, it was a very different world uh, and a very different country. Uh, for people like me in terms of someone who was openly gay and um, you know for instance when I was first elected in 1997 uh, public servants didn't have same-sex pension benefits uh, if you go further you know I was part of the debate around same-sex marriage uh, I was part of a cabinet in, under Paul Martin's leadership that, that brought in same-sex marriage uh, two years later uh, I got married and a few years after that became a father um, and in some ways just living my life openly and honestly and and having the opportunity to serve Canadians as a, as a member of parliament and as a cabinet minister uh, I've been able to actually help shape uh, social progress in those roles and at the same time as a citizen benefit from those those, those so, that social progress and those changes. And so in, when I'm leaving politics after 22 years, I can actually say to people, I believe today in government, in politics, in the role and the importance of members of parliament just as much today as I did when I started. Because if anyone tells me that members of parliament don't matter, that parliament doesn't matter, that government doesn't matter, all I have to do is point to my family because if it wasn't for Parliament, if it wasn't for leadership, if it wasn't uh, for, for uh, a government uh, tackling big issues, uh, a family like mine would not be legally recognized in Canada and I don't believe would be socially accepted and embraced as, as my family is. So, so as, as I'm exiting to focus on that family, as I exit politics to focus on that family, that family and, and the changes that have occurred during my time in public life affirm profoundly the importance of government and the importance of parliament. Scott Bryson, 22 years as an MP, uh, deciding to leave right now as the president of the Treasury Board. Thank you, sir, and thanks for your service. Appreciate it. All the best, Evan. Take care. That is Scott Bryson. All right, coming up on the program, it is a do or die moment for the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. Yes, there's a by-election in Burnaby South. If he wins, can he run and beat Justin Trudeau in the next election? But if he loses, what happens then? Our special guest on the Scrum will be the former NDP leader, Thomas Mulcair. Stay right here with Question Period.
going to do this together with love and courage, my friends. Let's get out there. Let's do this. All right. Well, it is a must win for the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. After Prime Minister Justin Trudeau finally called that by-election in Burnaby, South British Columbia, Jagmeet Singh does have a chance now to get into Parliament. Still, the NDP leader faces a very tough fight. The party is having trouble raising money. Many veteran candidates are not running this time around. Can he turn it all around in 10 months? Let's talk about that. And to talk about Canada's escalating tensions with China after the Chinese ambassador accused Canada of white supremacy in an editorial. Let's bring in the scrub. Tanya McCharles is a reporter for the Toronto Star. Joyce Napier is CTV's Ottawa bureau chief. Craig Oliver is, of course, CTV's chief political commentator. And our special guest is the former NDP leader, now CTV's political analyst, uh, Tom Mulcair. Great to see all of you. Let's start with Mr. Mulcair. The man who replaced you uh, has commented on this. Is this a do-or-die by-election for Jagmeet Singh? I think it's all in for Jagmeet Singh here for sure, Evan. Uh, he's also running in a riding that the NDP was able to win despite the Liberal wave in 2015. So I think that all the chances are on his side to be able to win in Burnaby South. But there's no question uh, that it would be incredibly tough for him if he were not able to win that riding. Uh, Tanya McCharles, I think they won by less than 600 votes the last mm -hmm. time, which is, I think he's got a, a very fair chance to win, but what's at stake for this guy right now? I think everything's on the line for him, and I think that the NDP are going to throw a lot at it. Uh, they're bringing out whatever M MPs they have in the sure. whole region, uh, campaigning hard, and, you know, maybe voters will give him a chance, but uh, no, if he loses, it's, it's, it's I would say, game over. Uh, Craig, okay. Well, look, I think that... Uh, Mr. Singh made a serious mistake in unloading on the former leader, who's uh, out there at the other end of his one here. Uh, he should recognize, Mr. Singh, that there is a lot of buyer's remorse these days in the NDP about the decision they made on Singh. And a lot of them are saying that had they stuck with Tom Mulcair, they'd be in much better shape right now with the Liberals declining in popularity and the Conservatives doubtful. The NDP might really be in a good position now. But uh, most NDPers think they're not. This is a party that's, that's in trouble. They don't have hardly have enough money for an election campaign, let alone for a leadership race. If he loses, should he go? Of course he should go. It doesn't matter who else replaces him. But a losing leader cannot lead a party into an election. So, you know, he's, he's an interesting character. He's got a whole bunch of gimmicks, you know, his foldable bicycle and all that stuff. But, you know, there's one word to describe him. It's hapless. Well, that's interesting. Tom, let me just go back to you because uh, and Craig mentioned this uh, in the interview that he did on this program earlier. He, he kind of took some shots at you about saying that effectively when you were the leader, you were voted out. We had no fundraising during that time, not a lot of traction. There's also a by-election in the riding where they used to help in Uchuma. Are you going to be campaigning there on behalf of a leader? Which you two seem to be going at each other. No, I'm not going to be campaigning, of course, because in my current role as a political commentator, that wouldn't be appropriate at all. But I am going to follow it very closely. They've got a very strong candidate, a woman named Julia Sanchez with a great background. It's going to be a very tough fight in Utremo, though, for the reason that was put forth by Etonda before, because all of the resources of the party that are available will, of course, go to Burnaby South to try to get uh, Mr. Singh elected. And with regard to fundraising, I mean, there are opinions, but there are also facts uh, forgetting what used to exist as per vote subsidies. Um, I'm proud to say that while I was leader of the NDP, I raised more money than any other leader in the history of the party, and that's a fact. 
All right, uh, and money, money may matter in this. Just one other thing, uh, are you ready for prime time, which is something that leaders have to face. He's 10 months away. Tony, let me just start with you. I, I asked him the question about the Chinese ambassador, which is a story I want to get to for all of us here. The Chinese ambassador writes an editorial accusing Canada of white supremacy regarding the detention of two Canadians and the detention of the Chinese executive in Vancouver. He hadn't even heard about an editorial that was the New York Times, the Guardian, it, meant, it made international news. Uh, what is that answer sort of surprised me does he is, he is he is he ready for prime time but it's not good enough uh, half the battle for everyone elementary students is doing your homework and showing up for class and so far Jagmeet Singh is still fighting to even show up for class and he's not doing his homework on the major issues of the day it's inconceivable that a leader of a major party would not be aware of the everyday developments on this huge story how Canada is caught between US and China so for me that I would give him a failing grade just on that alone. On that, Evan, I have to agree, it was very surprising that an, an issue that was on the front pages, not just in Canada, but in New York mm -hmm. and in London, it, there were a lot of people who have paid close attention to what was being said here. It was a pretty shocking statement, and uh, I was a little bit surprised to, to find out that it was news uh, for Mr. Singh. Yeah, I mean, remember, Joyce, he was caught on camera asking his own party's position once during a scrum. So this is not the first time, but I guess the questions will be, is he ready for primetime? Well, I mean, the answer is clearly no, not yet. Will he be ready for primetime, you know, when the election starts? You know, the thing is that even if he wasn't aware of what the Chinese ambassador wrote, let's say he was, you know, under a stone for a few days and his right. iPhone didn't work and he didn't have television and he didn't have nothing, <laughs> right? <laughs> let's okay. say, let's say, let's say that. Let's, I'll right. give him that. Can you not at least talk about Canada's foreign policy? Can you just not change the conversation into how is it that Canada finds itself in this position where a judge will eventually decide what our foreign policy is on this issue, which is actually quite interesting for any party leader to debate. Why did he not go there? And, 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 and instead of just showing you how little he knows. Let's broaden it out. Craig, let me go to you. Let's broaden it out on this China thing. I, I've never heard a Chinese ambassador to Canada so harshly criticize Canada as white supremacists were trying to do a trade deal with them. What, what does that all mean? I failed to understand where the Chinese ambassador was coming from on that, and I think it damages his country's arguments on almost everything we're talking about. Tom Mulcair, I was surprised. Where do we go now in terms of this pursuit of a trade deal with China? Uh, the, this relationship is very strained. What's your read? Huawei is a company that wants to get into Canada. We're the only member of the Five Eyes. That's Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain, and the United States have all said no to Huawei. Canada has said yes. We've got to revisit that. I think at some point we've got to do two things. Recognize that President Trump's statements that Hold, and making that request for extradition of that Huawei executive now in house arrest in Vancouver was related to a trade deal, that's fatal to the cause. We shouldn't even allow this to go to the courts. We should allow her to go home. We should also tell Huawei to go home. I, they should not be allowed to set up shop in Canada. I agree. I agree. Well, I just think that that in itself, though, is an extraordinary um, 
statement to say that at this point the executive branch should make some political decision and override the courts in Canada. I don't think there's any play for Canada there whatsoever. Uh, but well, we don't uh, even have a pro we don't even have a proper request for extradition yet. The we Americans do, well, we do have a process a that's request. in train. We have a process that's in train under a law. So that, uh, based on everything Canada stands for, should be allowed to play itself itself out. I don't see any other way. Trudeau can't get involved in that uh, as an executive matter. And as to the Chinese ambassador's statement, it was incredibly crude and unsophisticated. And I'm not actually convinced that the Chinese uh, writ large are not are, are a little bit more sophisticated than that. I don't think that's representative of uh, of, a, of a broad view. I think that's it was so out, outlandish. Uh, it betrays more his own ignorance than anybody else. I think what's becoming more clear all the time is that we are into a new Cold War here, much more dangerous than the ones we were in with the Russians. The Chinese want to dominate the global economy, especially in the area of technology. The Americans are determined they won't do it. The Chinese need that trade to pay for their huge military buildup. Uh, and I think Canada has no choice. We've got to pick our sides. We may not have wanted to pick our sides, and it's going to have to be our old alliance with the United States in every respect. Well, uh, well, we can't have it both ways. We can't have it both ways. We can't plead the rule of law and say that we're following the rules like, you know, the good scouts that we are, and at the same time have an American president who openly states that he would be willing to let her go if he gets a trade deal. We can't have it both ways. It's clearly not based on the rule of law. It clearly has something to do with the Americans wanting to negotiate their trade deal. And I don't think that we should be patsies in this situation and keep pleading, oh, well, once it's in the courts, we can't do anything. All right, I, I got to leave it there. We are a party to an extradition treaty, and that's been at this point, guiding how this has gone. Tom Walker, I appreciate you joining us this morning, and I should let you know that, Pleasure. at least for this week, I've joined Team Beard. I don't know about next week. Coming up, <laughs> opposition is growing to a natural gas pipeline that was thought to have everyone on side. Does it really? The scrum returns with special guest former Grand Chief Sheila North on why hundreds of people have turned up to protest across the country. Stay right here with Question Period. We need to figure out a new and better way to do things. A way that is based on respect and dialogue and engagement. And that is exactly what we're working. And there's going to be turbulence along the way, which we are seeing. But we are also going to work very, very hard to get to a place of respect and trust. Well, the Prime Minister's Western swing of town hall meetings has often been confrontational and raw. There's been debates about the $40 billion liquefied natural gas pipeline in British Columbia that, get this, it has federal support, provincial support, it's got the support of the courts, and even the support of all the elected First Nation leaders along the pipeline route. But it does not have the support of a different group, the hereditary leaders on those lands, and which is why... 14 protesters were arrested by the RCMP. That set off demonstrations across the country and, of course, lit up the Prime Minister in those town halls. Now, the interesting wrinkle to this is that B.C. Premier John Horgan, who's against the controversial oil pipeline, the Trans Mountain, 
he supports this natural gas pipeline, and look what he said about the protesters. Well, if they're breaking the law, there are consequences for that, and that's why 14 people were arrested yesterday. Again, uh, you have every right to uh, exercise your dissent, and you have every expectation that you will have to pay the consequences for that. So, if this LNG pipeline can't be built, does it bode ill for the Trans Mountain expansion, the oil pipeline that the government bought for $4.5 billion? To talk about that and what's at stake, the Scrum is back. Tonda McCharles, Joris Napier, Craig Oliver. Our special guest for this round is the former Manitoba Grand Chief, uh, Sheila North. Good to see you all back here. And uh, Sheila North, great to see you. Um, what have you read into the demonstrations against a pipeline that many people thought had a lot of support? This was supposed to be the pipeline that was working. Yet there's national demonstrations. What does that tell you? I think this is what what is the result of what's been happening for years and years and even generations of the lack of respect for inherent and treaty rights to lands and waters and resources. And so you're you're coming to see into the forefront the 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 real thinking and and the and the um the 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 thoughts behind what's happening with jurisdiction with the lands and and rights to it but also with a lack of respect many indigenous people have felt and faced over many generations so this is the culmination and and, and th that's a lot of what we're seeing across the country. Can Joy, the national so interest afford to watch another pipeline, a pipeline that the Prime Minister officiated at the opening of $40 billion, we can't spend $40 billion buying another pipeline. If we have to wait for unanimity on the part of First Nations, now including hereditary chiefs, who we have to respect and talk to, if we have to do that, I'm not sure we can ever get a, a birdhouse built in Western Canada if we're not careful. Joyce. I think this is, there was the silent majority, and then there's the loud minority. And this is what we're seeing. It's a loud minority. We saw them in Ottawa. There were a couple of dozen. They were loud. They were good. They occupied the, the building where the Prime Minister had to address Indigenous leaders. So they were clever. The too, they Joyce. were clever in Ottawa. They were clever across the country. But if you count, how many people were they, really, that were opposed to this project, as opposed to who is for this project? You will realize that a majority, courts, federal, provincial, and elected uh, indigenous leaders are for it. This has been negotiated. We have elected leaders who are telling us hundreds of millions of dollars have already been pledged. People are thinking of projects. This is a positive project. Yeah. How did it turn into such a, a nasty show? Well, I just think that, and if you follow that to its logical conclusion, you don't arrive actually at a great answer. Um, right. So, so, so I think one of the things that the, the point Sheila's raising about you know decades, generations of not dealing with these issues that Indigenous people have raised. One of the things about it is that Indigenous people themselves haven't dealt. Uh, as among themselves about the yes. way forward and come to agreement among themselves under their own arrangements how to move forward. And I think more than anything, I think we're seeing that many of the Indigenous leaders, certainly the elected ones, are making the case that our youth can't afford not to benefit uh, from some well, of this. Let, let me just get Sheila to it, respond to that. Sheila, go ahead. There's definitely a good argument for people that are for the pipeline because when you live in abject poverty, when you're a leader in a community that is constantly answering the question of, I need, I need more food, I need more diapers, I need more milk, I need a door, I need heat in our house, those are the pressing pressing issues that bread and butter issues that our leaders face across the country, especially the ones that live in the north in extreme poverty 
areas and and they're extreme in extreme poverty because of the way this country has un, unfolded and 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 the society has turned out to be so you know while we're while we're hearing the differences and, and opposing views sometimes it seems like it at the same time it's the government and 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 society and even the industry that pits uh, make sides uh, pick each other and pick on each other and I think no, no. when we're talking about hereditary society and then we're talking about elected officials I think they're all saying the same thing but it's a lack of respect and um, you know it, the government sometimes uses one over the other and when it's convenient unfortunately the circumstances, the, the, circumstances the grand chief has just uh, talked about it's exactly why the elected chiefs have all signed on to this project. They want to improve the economic lives of their fellow citizens. They are doing the right thing. Uh, and, and that's why they're making the decisions they are. And the hereditary chiefs, it seems to me, are not helping. Okay. Nobody can make a decision anymore. at the same time, anymore. it's for the water. But it's for the water and the lands, and when you hear and listen to the arguments of the hereditary and the grassroots people across the country, they're fighting for the protection of the environment. They feel that innate uh, relationship to the land and water, and, and they don't have a choice. They have to speak up for it where they can and how they can, and we're seeing that more and more. But isn't that insulting to the elected chiefs who have agreed to, to these developments to suggest that they don't give any care or any they have no concern for the environment and the, the lands that their people live on i i think that i think that they themselves have expressed that uh, but also they see that there has to be some progress um, for their young people and for all those problems you just outlined uh, okay I, there's a just so people appreciate there are legal complexities here the in British Columbia especially, of course. The elected officials do control bans, but the hereditary chiefs also have legal control over some of the lands outside. So, uh, so it is, there's a legitimate argument here that adds a complexity to all this. But if we're seeing this for LNG, what can we expect if shovels do go in the ground on the Trans Mountain, the oil pipeline? I think the discussion will continue. There will still be protests, and I think that it's, it's warranted. There have been many generations, and, and we have a long memory as Indigenous people of false promises and false hopes and broken treaties, broken promises. And so, you know, it's not a wonder that many of us are skeptical, many chiefs, and, and it's false to think that all chiefs across the country are are for pipelines or for development because there's varying opinions. Mm -hmm. This yeah, country we, is we vast, as you know, and people, people in Quebec have different views as they do in BC. So we have to respect that, what people's decision. But ultimately, I think we do have to respect that Indigenous people of this lands have the best interest at heart for the lands and for their people. And, and that always has to be paramount in every discussion. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, really interesting discussion. Tonda, Joyce, Craig, and Sheila Noor, thanks so much to all of you for joining us. We're watching that file. Now, before we go, I just want to say a special thank you to one of our producers, Mackenzie Gray. He is now leaving our program to work with Lisa Laflamme and Joyce on The National. He has been with us for the last three years. He is one of the hardest working, smartest, and greatest guys, worked very closely, and we all want to thank him for just doing yeoman service here. And uh, to honor him, I've decided to wear his tie today. Mac, congrats, thank you so much. Congratulations on the new job. It's a great family here at CTV Question Period, and we will be back here in seven short days.